This is Power for Living, the Bible teaching ministry of Christ the King Church in Wakefield, Massachusetts. I'm your host, Feliciano Segundo, and our teacher is Father Michael Carl. So get all your Bibles and let's get started. For our teaching time today, we are going to look at the resurrection passage, Matthew 28, 1 through 13. If we go back to chapter 27, verses 62 through 66, what we see is the Pharisees went to Pilate and got a guard to make the tomb secure. Now, this is important to the entire resurrection story because a guard wasn't only one guy. There could have been as many as 24 to 30 soldiers at that tomb. Now, the stone weighed two tons. Does anybody remember from math class how many pounds two tons is? 4,000, very good. So that stone weighed 4,000 pounds. That is one big stone, right? Now, so one of my sources said that Everything possible human-wise was done to keep Jesus in that tomb. Now, we notice here that in the same act, God can comfort his servants and terrify his enemies. Think about that. The Lord sent the angel and to comfort the women, but guess what? The guards, however many there were, four to twelve of them at a time, were terrified. And what did they do? They fell down like dead men. This is more than just sleep. This is, we're talking to where those guys were totally out of it. Now, what we need to also remember is that Christ's burial, however, not only confirmed his death, it also provided the necessary background to his resurrection. For Paul and the other apostles, the resurrection of Jesus is not wishful thinking. It isn't the product of hallucinations, nor is it a sense that the spirit or ethos of Jesus' teachings would live on among men. The apostolic doctrine of resurrection is that Jesus' dead and buried body lived again and left the tomb where it had been placed. Now, so many of the skeptics have tried to make something else out of this. They've said that he didn't become unconscious and enter a coma, as they say. Some of them say that he just kind of swooned and kind of passed out. The fact that he was buried in the tomb and had it sealed with wax, the, the governor's seal, shows that Jesus actually died. The body of Jesus underwent the physical sufferings of a crucifixion victim, and the soul of Jesus parted from his body for a time. This was real physical death, like any person experiences who passes away. So what we need to know here from this is that Jesus was really dead. Now, he rose from the dead as he said he was going to. Now, let's take a look at this a little further. 
And David Guzik says in his commentary that the angel said, He is not here, for he has risen. For the first time, the followers of Jesus, these faithful women, heard what they did not expect to hear. You see, they were taking spices to the grave in the hopes that they could continue to anoint Jesus' body for continued burial. But they did not expect to hear from the angel, He has risen. There are several examples in the Bible of people being resuscitated back to life. The widow's son with Elijah. The other woman's son with Elisha. Then there's Lazarus. Each of these was resuscitated from death, but none of them were resurrected. Each of them was raised in the same body they died in and eventually die again. Resurrection isn't just living again. It is living again in a new body based on our old body, perfectly suited for life in eternity. Jesus was not the first one brought back from the dead, but he was the first one who was resurrected. We should also say that Jesus is still risen. Do we believe that? Yes. All right. He ascended into heaven and continues to reign as resurrected man, still fully man and fully God. You can go to Israel now and on the side of that mountain going down into that gully where you can still see an ocean of tombs on the Mount of Olives, a vast sea of graves outside the eastern wall of the Temple Mount. You can probably find, if it's marked, the tomb of David or the tomb of Absalom, his son. But guess what? You won't find the tomb of Jesus anywhere. Why? Because he's not there. Jesus told those women to what? Rejoice. And then the, well, the angel's the one who said, don't be afraid. But Jesus said for them to rejoice. Now, Spurgeon says about this place in verse 9 where we are now, he would not let Mary Magdalene do that when they were alone, for he said to her, remember in the John's Gospel resurrection story, he said to Mary Magdalene, don't take hold of me, for I have not yet ascended. But he wouldn't let them touch him, or her touch him. But now Jesus permits these godly women to hold him by the feet. It was an act of humility, worshiping and holding and holding not his hands, but his feet. They must have seen the nail marks before Thomas did, as they held him by the feet and worshiped him. These women did not run to the angels, but rather they shrank back from them, but they came to Jesus. There must have been a new attraction about Christ after he had risen from the dead, something sweeter about the tones of his voice, something more charming about the countenance that had been so maimed at Gethsemane and Gabbatha and Golgotha. So Jesus appeared differently to them, but he was worthy of their worship. And so they worshiped him. Now, 
What did the soldiers do? They went into town and went to the who? The Pharisees. And they said, uh, he's not there anymore. Yeah, can you imagine these guys, how absolutely terrified they probably were? Because if Jesus had escaped, what did that mean for the Roman soldiers? Death. Death. So they told, the Pharisees told the soldiers to say, well, the disciples came by night and they stole his body. This was as absurd Adam Clark, a 18th century Bible expositor, says that this was as absurd as it was false. On one hand, the terror of the disciples, the smallness of their number, only 11 by this time, and their almost total want of faith. On the other, the great danger of such a bold enterprise, the number of armed men who guarded the tomb, the authority of Pilate and of the Sanhedrin, must render such an imposture as this utterly devoid of credit. Now, here's a whole heap of these absurdities. Is it likely that so many men would all fall asleep in the open air all at once? No. Is it at all probable that a Roman guard should be found off their watch, much less asleep, when it was instant death according to Roman military laws. And so then, could they be so sound asleep as to not awake with all the noise which must be necessarily present made by those 11 terrified men trying to move the stone and taking out the body of Jesus? Is it at all likely that these disciples could have had sufficient time to do all of this and to come and return without being perceived by any person. And if they were asleep, how could they possibly know that it would have been the disciples that stole him? Or indeed that any person or persons stole him. For being asleep, they could see no person. From their own testimony, therefore, the resurrection may be as fully proved as any theft possible. Those are a few of those reasons why it's so unlikely that the disciples came and stole the body. Now, they were paid to keep quiet and just say, if anybody asks, we were asleep and they came and stole his body. And that's what the Pharisees paid them to do. And it is kind of ridiculous if you think about it because of all those absurd things we just read about. The question is then, what do the soldiers do? Do they say someone broke the seal, who, if they did and had no one to point to, meant punishment by death? Do they say they broke the seal, a crime punishable by death? Do they lie and say they fell asleep, which is also punishable by death? Or do they say Jesus rose from the dead and bounced away, which would have been then blasphemy, which is also punishable by death. So these guys were in deep something. They were in trouble, and they knew it. 
which is why they ran to the Pharisees instead of to Pilate. If you thought you had a case and you were brave enough, they might have gone to Pilate, the governor, and said, hey, man, something weird happened and Jesus came out of the tomb. Pilate would have said, yeah, right. You know, so they went to the Pharisees because they figured they could get some protection from them. And yeah, the Pharisees said, if it comes to Pilate's attention, we will appease him and protect you. Now, that also was highly unlikely. Why? Because Rome was in charge. So how were they going to convince the Roman governor not to execute all 30 of those men? They were kind of feeding the soldiers a line, too. But the soldiers took the money and pew, probably got out of town. And if that were them, that's what I would have done, is get out of town. Now we know that Jesus' resurrection is historically believable. Does anybody remember or know who Charles Colson was? He was one of the figures in the Watergate deal. And he was the president's legal counsel. Now, he later got saved, and then he started a ministry, and then he began an apologetics ministry every day on the radio with a series of commentaries called Breakpoint. But Colson says that the Watergate affair is what convinced him that the resurrection had to be true. You say, how is that? And it's this. If it was a lie and a made-up story that Jesus' body had been stolen, do you think that many people could keep that secret? Because two days after all of the rests for Watergate took place, and they had built up this alibi, but the secret got out. So the co-conspirators couldn't keep a secret. So he thought, if we couldn't keep a secret for more than three days, how is it that all those people could keep a secret for years and years and years? So Colson decided that resurrection story has to be true because we couldn't keep a secret for two or three days. Now, how good are any of us at keeping secrets? And so that's how we know that Jesus actually truly rose from the dead because the lie didn't, wouldn't have held up. And so this morning we have reason to rejoice because Jesus is alive. Thank you so much for joining us for this week's edition of Power for Living. If you happen to miss any of our other programs, be sure to go to our podcast page at ChristTheKingNorthShore.podbean.com. And you can also visit our website at www.ctknorthshore.org. If this program has been a blessing, feel free to let us know. Write us at Power for Living, Care of Christ the King Church, 4 Railroad Avenue, Suite 309 in Wakefield, Massachusetts, 01880. Or you can also send us an email at ChristTheKingNorthShore at gmail.com. You can be a part of this gospel ministry by becoming a patron of Power for Living. You can find out how by clicking the Become a Patron button at the top of our podcast page. That's it for this week, and until next time, remember that Jesus is your Power for Living.